0: You're listening to tales from the lost armada and i'm your host ricardo cabral in episode six i shared some brushes with fame and i hope you enjoyed those and i'm going to continue those now with several more that i've put together the first one being jessica lang and jane Curtin, the two actresses who starred in a motion picture at the time that i interviewed them in tandem the next one is jerry garcia a very brief one but nevertheless it counts After that, Bill Graham, who's related to Jerry Garcia since I went to a number of Grateful Dead shows at Winterland. But in this case, this encounter with Graham occurred at the Warfield Theater. The next person, very brief one, was Tom Flores, the Super Bowl winning coach in 1981, and then ending on Guru Maharaji. And if you've never heard of him, well, you'll know more about him after you get done with this brush with fame. While going to graduate school in Oregon in 1979, I interned at radio station KLCC, and one day they assigned me to cover a novel story. A Hollywood production company had infiltrated Eugene, Oregon to film a comedy called How to Beat the High Cost of Living. It starred three actresses, Susan St. James, Jessica Lange, and Jane Curtin, making her film debut after several seasons on Saturday Night Live. To that point, I had literally had no media experience when I reported to a local mall where the shooting took place. An assistant producer told me they were currently filming, but after a break, I'd be able to interview Jane Curtin and maybe even Jessica Lange, hot after her starring role in King Kong. He pointed through a retail doorway where Jane could be seen standing at a checkout counter. I watched them film the scene a couple of times, and then I heard the director say, Take five! Did that mean it was the break I was waiting for? I wasn't sure. I looked around for the producer, but he wasn't around. So I walked across the set and through the doorway. I approached Jane Curtin. Hi, I'm with KLCC and was told that we'd be doing an interview at the break. Is is this a good time? Jane Curtin grimaced as if Son of Sam had approached. No! She groaned through clenched teeth and glanced around with a look of terror. I got the message. I walked back, returned to my seat where the producer was waiting for me, enacting the old arms-folded foot-tapping routine. And after I apologized, he said, Stay here, and if you're lucky, we may still get you that interview. I plopped down as a reproached altar boy, a role that I had often played at St. Robert's. Well, about 30 minutes later, the official break was announced, and soon after, I was seated in front of Jane Curtin and Jessica Lange sitting directly across from me. How intimidating. As an icebreaker, I asked the women to contrast Eugene with New York City, And without flinching, Jane said, well, you can walk on sidewalks out here or you don't have to step around pizza, for Christ's sake. Here's Jessica Lang with thoughts on the subject. What, moving to Oregon? Well, possibly. You know, once, once, you know, after like a couple more films, perhaps, I could live in the country and just come in to, you know, do a film in L.A. or New York or something like that. I love the country. I'd like to live outside of the city. But I don't know. I'd miss New York an awful lot, I think. I then asked Lang if she had ever acted in a comedy before. Well, I would say King Kong was a comedy, wouldn't you? She then glanced at Jane, who grinned as if to say, Good one, kiddo. And then I realized they were putting me on. Let's goof on the rookie reporter and have a laugh. Which they did, and I came away with this cool story from it. By the early 1970s, I had unexpectedly been introduced to the Grateful Dead and, to my surprise, enjoyed their music and became a big fan. When we saw the shows at Winterland October 1974, rumors had it that these were their retirement concerts. Well that summer, while the band was on hiatus, we found other ways to amuse ourselves and so one summer day, Sancho Panza and I took off for the coast. Driving through San Rafael, I mentioned, you know, uh the dead have their office somewhere around here. Be kind of cool to drop in and check it out. Sancho asked if I knew the location. No, hadn't not a clue. Suddenly he points through my driver's side window. There, Radio Shack. Someone in there might know. So we walk inside and there's a guy in there chatting with an employee standing behind the counter. His hair slicked back like he was a chorus member of Sha-na-na. One look at him and I turned to leave. Sancho said, Where are you going? Let's ask. I whispered, "'Seriously? You think that guy's going to know?' Well, Sancho walks up, excuses himself, and says, "'You happen to know where the dead office is?' Well, Shanonah goes, "'Oh, yeah, Fifth and Lincoln, couple streets away.' He seemed to read my astonishment and added, "'Ah, they come in here all the time.' About five minutes later, we pull up to the corner of Fifth and Lincoln. I pointed to a two-story house across the street, where parked in the driveway is a black Volvo. Garcia must be in there. That's his Volvo.' We entered the back gate and approached the stairway leading upstairs where we heard someone playing banjo. The sound of our footsteps brought a long-haired guy with a handlebar mustache out the door. Now what's happening, guys? What do you need? We stopped midway up the stairs. Always fast on his feet, Sancho said, We came to sign up for the Dead's mailing list. The guy exhaled in exasperation and said, "Well, You should have gone to the front door. That's where the office is. You might as well come this way. He waves us up the stairs, where we then enter a kitchen where two guys are talking. One was Jerry Garcia, sitting on a stool playing banjo, and I'm sure our eyes bulged out like the characters from the movie Roger Rabbit. Howdy, he says, real folksy-like, as if he was just sitting on the front porch of a spread in Navasota, Texas, just playing for the rabbits in the fields. Hey, man, we said back. Our guide waved us to follow him. Well, we descended another flight of stairs and then were led to a desk in the main living room where a woman handed us a clipboard and we signed onto the dead's mailing list. And for some stupid reason, instead of just going right out the front door, we then went back up the second flight of stairs to the upstairs kitchen, past Garcia and his friend again, howdy, he says again like he's seeing us for the very first time, went down the stairs and out through the gate, and on the sidewalk Sanchez and I allowed our elation to overflow. We just met Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead. In September of 1980, the Grateful Dead were celebrating their 15th year in the business by staging a 15-night run at the Warfield Theater in San Francisco. Rumor had it, it was the longest series of rock concerts by one group in the same venue ever. Leave it to the dead to make history. By this point, I had seen the band a couple dozen times, and almost all of those were at Winterland in the city. The idea of performing in an old theater where the acoustics were sublime, well, that was a cherishable moment. Also at this time, I was still searching for my first PR job in a downturn market where the borrowing rate had climbed to nearly 20%, which almost shut down the economy. So I turned to freelancing, and used my knowledge of the upcoming Dead shows at the Warfield to get the Sacramento Union newspaper, may it rest in peace, to assign me to review the concert. I arrived early at the Warfield Theater and immediately felt like promoter Bill Graham had transformed the lobby into his personal acid trip. Displayed throughout was a melange of colorful fabrics, posters of the Dead's 15-year retrospective, album covers plus a three-dimensional object hanging from the ceiling, a mannequin of a butterfly man, wings extended in flight. Speakers had also been brought into the lobby and throughout the hallway, leading to the theater proper. Then as I wandered toward my seat, there in the hallway, parked against the wall, was a most curious sight for a rock concert, a popcorn stand. Two men were working behind it. Bill Graham was one of them. The top rock promoter in America wearing a white apron and shoveling popcorn? it must be the acid. I skirted around the crowd and called out to Graham that I was covering the concert for the union and would he have time for a quick comment. He wiped his greasy hands on the white apron and came around into the hallway. When asked about the speakers piping the dead's music into the lobby, Graham said, oh, it's a whole new experiment. People can leave their seats to dance if they want and it allows for greater freedom where things can happen spontaneously. It's like theater. He glanced around at the patrons pouring into the old venue. It is theater. Then Bill Graham returned to his duties at the popcorn stand. There's a quick postscript. One week later, when I came for my second show, I brought with me a poster board featuring the Union newspaper review I had written, including Graham's quote. Once again, I found Graham working behind the popcorn stand. And once again, I went around the crowd, held up the poster board and mentioned, this is my review. He wiped his right hand on the apron took the board, and read the headline, Dead Come Alive in Record-Setting Series, and nodded. He placed the poster against the wall and went back to selling popcorn. All right, who's next? Who's next here? An amazing lesson in the age of Aquarian capitalism. In January of 1981, I just began my PR career as a generalist with University of the Pacific which claimed they were the oldest independent college in California. So as part of my duties, I was tabbed the campus photographer since I could handle a camera pretty well. Well, one of my first assignments, my editor tells me to go to the reception room in the football stadium to photograph one of UOP's most famous alums, Tom Flores, the head coach of Los Angeles Raiders, who had just won the 1981 Super Bowl. And not just Flores, but get him along with the university's president, Stanley McCaffrey. You like football, right? The editor asked. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Besides, Flores just won a Super Bowl, hell yeah. I should interject that at this time I was trying out a new Vivitar flash unit. And in this particular room, there was not enough available light to take photos, so I had to use the flash. One thing about this flash, it had a sensor button that could be detached and mounted on what is called the hot shoe which is then reattached to the top of the camera while you're holding the flash unit in one hand off to the side to avoid creating a dark shadow directly behind your subjects special camera technique so when it was time to take the picture of Stanley McCaffrey and Tom Flores our VP arranged them in a nice pose and then he said okay are you ready and I said hold on one second and then I went for the detached flash technique okay here we go the VP cheers one two three but no flash the VP looks at me. What? What's what's wrong here? Let me let me just check the flash unit. I stare at it. Everything seems to be in order. The green lights flashing, meaning there's a battery charge. I put the camera to my face and hold the flash out again. Flores and McCaffrey light up their best artificial smiles. Okay, one, two, three. Again, no light. So now I've got two dark images and two grown men who are even looking darker because they're getting antsy. The VP sidles up and whispers. Uh, you, You know what the hell you're doing. I said, yeah. So I checked the flash unit again, and then I see my mistake. I hadn't detached the sensor from the flash unit itself and placed it on the hot shoe unit. So I did that. Yep, here we go. I'm ready. The VP turns cheerleader once more. One, two, three! And the flash goes off, and I get the shot. Well, I continue mingling in the room for a while, and then I rush off to the lab to develop the black and white film. So the following morning, I walk into the editor's office, and hand him my contact sheet. He looks up and says, how did it go? Did you get a good shot of McCaffrey with Tom Flores? Yep. I bend down and gesture to a frame on the contact sheet. There. A sudden scowl darkens this guy's face. You only got one shot? He looks up and sees me nodding. Oh, you gotta get several shots when you're doing faces, Rick. One guy might not be smiling and the other guy's eyelid may be half open. Remember that. Did you happen to even make a print of this one, this one shot? I hand him the 5x7 print. Both Flores and McCaffrey are wearing their perfect smiles. Turned out to be a great shot. A winner. It was simple as one, two, three. Houston, Texas, July 1973. I was house-sitting that summer for a friend, and on this particular morning I was washing the dishes. Over the sound of rushing water, I heard a knock at the front screen door. As I peered through the door, out on the wooden veranda, stood an odd-looking couple, a lovely brunette woman about my age who bore a striking resemblance to Cindy Williams, the actress in that summer's hit movie, American Graffiti. Beside her stood a very tall, red-headed fellow. Hi, what's going on? The young lady smiled. We're talking to folks in the Montrose District about Guru Maharaji. She saw my look of confusion. You haven't heard of him, I take it. I shook my head. Uh No. Now listen, I was just finishing the dishes, so the redhead leans in front of the woman. Live here alone, do you? I nod. Well, maybe you have a few minutes to learn about the guru. The gal sensed my displeasure and like a savvy door-to-door salesperson, she asked a qualifying question that soon pried open the screen door. By any chance, do you happen to meditate? I'm Susie and this is Phil. Unconsciously, I exited onto the veranda. I do, Yes. I found myself standing next to them on the porch. Well, Guru Maharaji teaches meditation too, she said, along with three other forms of knowledge. Susie gestured for me to sit with her on the front porch step. Guru Maharaji is the Lord and Perfect Master here on Earth. She spoke the Indian's name so quickly and fluidly, it sounded like Guru Maharaji, like the name of a scratch-free plastic coating for your car's paint job. Phil adds, you know, there's only one Perfect Master on the planet at any one time, and... Maharaji holds that position now. He's only fifteen, Susie says, and at age three he discovered he was the Lord and Perfect Master just after his father had died. I didn't know what to say. I'd only been meditating for a short time using the transcendental meditation mantra taught by the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. But this Lord and Perfect Master trip, I have to admit, it was interesting. Susie sensed this. You know Jesus, right? I nod. she continues well jesus was the lord and perfect master during his time on earth the redhead jumps in same as gautama buddha and his time this transcendental tag team was beginning to wear me out the lord is always with us on earth in various incarnations and for this time it's guru maharaji susie said the couple told me this recruitment was especially intense as the guru and his family planned to hold millennium 73 a three day extravaganza in the Houston Astrodome to introduce him to the United States. I rise from the porch. Yeah, like I said, guys, I got dishes in the sink. You should come to a meeting, she says before I go through the door, and she hands me a slip of paper with the address. I nod for the last time. Well, you know, maybe I'll see you there some night. Phil bows and replies with a Hindi chant, Bollyan Shri Sadgurudev Maharaj jay." Well, intrigued, I went to a couple of meetings of the Divine Light mission and learned more about this 15-year-old perfect master and his views on enlightenment. One day that summer at an event, Susie rushed up and shared a secret. He's coming. Who's coming? Guru Maharaji, here in Houston, Tuesday night. It's part of an advance promotion for Millennium 73. We're all going out to greet him. you got to come. So I went. Walking through Houston's Hobby Airport terminal, one could feel the electricity in the air or Maybe it was the incense mingling with the cigar smoke emanating from the men wearing the tall stetsons. Such a strange amalgam, the mingling of Texas natives with the wannabe East Indian devotees. I simply followed the line of flowers leading to the tarmac exit doors. The corridor was populated on both sides with premis, that is devotees, holding flowers, photos of the guru, and esoterica they wished to bestow on GMJ upon his arrival. The idea that the Lord would make his stand in Houston, of all places, seemed a bit bewildering to a Catholic from California. I looked around and I didn't see Susie or anyone that I recognized from DLM. People were asking each other, Why is he late? Where's he so late for? When's he going to get here? He's so late! Suddenly, I felt a charge in the environment where Guru Maharaji's retinue began filing in. Some female Premies bounced at the prospect they would soon be in the presence of the Lord and after several of his people strolled between the two lines of well-wishers, the guru finally entered the building. From twenty yards away he resembled photos of what I had seen of him, a roly-poly Indian teenager dressed in a white Nehru jacket and flouncy cotton pajamas with black slippers. As he approached, every devotee bowed at the waist. The smooth choreography of the two lines bowing in unison reminded me of a June Taylor dancer's routine. Each premi remained half-prostrated, until well after the guru had passed. When he approached my area, the two persons to my right assumed the position, however I remained upright. I truly wanted to take in the measure of the man to gauge his vibe and see whether this guru was legit. My refusal to bow obviously drew his attention. He didn't appear miffed, but perhaps curious that this Caucasian from California possessed the moxie to stare directly into his eyes. I half expected a thunderbolt of divine light to pass through me. Instead, I watched as a chubby Indian boy casually walked past the premies, prostrating in his presence. At this point, both lines to my right had resumed their upright position, sharing in exaltation. As the guru wandered throughout the terminal, I found Susie. She cast a steely gaze my way, reminding me of the expression, if looks could kill. She was shaking her head. What's your problem? She takes a deep intake breath. You didn't bow. She spoke with controlled anger, with both hands balled into fists. Easy now. So I wanted to check him out. I am so embarrassed. You didn't show Guru Maharaji the proper respect. I reached for her arm. Zeus, come on. She recoiled at the gesture. Don't Zeus me. You put me in a bad spot susie turned and then jogged off to catch up with the remainder of the crowd following guru Maharajji out of the airport terminal i had the strange sensation that my karma was badly out of whack two workers who had just entered from the tarmac passed me by i overheard the first one say to the other why oh, you'd think he was the second colour of the chaise and the second one said Yeah, and they believe he flew in here just to be with him. Now That dude flew into Houston International hours ago and was driven here in a Rolls Royce. That's why he was so damn late. The first one shook his head. Jesus Christ, (laughs) my ass.